like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. The book of Nehemiah is the autobiography of a man who was used by God at a critical time in the history of Israel. While in Susa, the capital of Persia, he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and he was burdened enough not only to pray about it, but to go when God opened the door. And so Nehemiah traveled the 800 miles from Susa to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And as we come to chapter 8, that project has been accomplished. The walls are finished, the gates have been hung, the material needs of the city have been met. Now it was time to focus on the spiritual needs of the city. And in chapters 8 through 13, that's what Nehemiah records for us. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 8 where we have, to my knowledge, the first recorded revival. Now, depending on our background, some of us will associate the word revival with a concerted effort to reach the lost. When I say the word revival, you think about an evangelist preaching. If someone says we had a revival, you say, well, how many people got saved? You see, that is not the biblical definition of a revival. You see, you can't revive a lost person. You can't revive a person who is spiritually dead. They don't need revival, they need resurrection. Revival is for the saved. Revival occurs when God rekindles the spiritual fire in his people. Now, people being saved is a byproduct of revival, but revival occurs in the hearts of God's people. That's why in Psalm 119 you will find the phrase, Revive me 11 times. Now, if that writer, inspired by the Spirit of God to write the longest chapter in the Bible, had to pray, revive me, then I would say that we should be praying that as well. You say, well, I certainly see a need in my life for a revival. My Christian experience has sort of plateaued. I feel a little isolated, a little bit remote, a little bit distant from God. I feel like I'm sort of going through the motions in my Christian experience. I certainly sense a need of revival. What do I need to do? What can I do to precipitate a revival in my life? Well, we find the answer in our passage this morning. In fact, it jumps right out at us in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. A revival is going to take place in Jerusalem, and it's going to take place because Ezra brought the book, the Word of God. Every revival begins here. It begins when God's people get back to the Word of God. And in this chapter, we are going to see the impact that the Word of God had on the people in Nehemiah's day and the same impact that it can have on our lives today. And we will notice that it impacts the whole person, the mind, the emotions, and the will. With our mind, we understand it. With our emotions, we feel it. And with our will, we obey it. Now let's look at how that happens in chapter 8. And as we do, I want us to note three ways that we must respond to the Word of God in order for revival to take place. 
First of all, the mind in verses 1 to 8. Notice, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, the Bible is not a magic book. I can't just wave it over somebody and something happens. I can't just recite verses and things happen. The Bible has to be understood so that it can penetrate my heart with its life-changing power. Understanding is essential to the impact of the Word of God. And that's why in this chapter we find the concept of understanding used six times. In verse 2, we see the word understanding. Verse 3, they understood. Verse 7, they explained. Verse 8, they translated to give the sense so they could understand. Verse 12, they understood. Verse 13, they gained insight into the words. He's talking about understanding. That's why in verses 3 and 4 we read that all those who could listen with understanding were gathered there. See, they didn't bring little children who couldn't understand to this assembly. They had the first children's church as well. They didn't bring the little children who couldn't understand. Why not? Because listening to the Word is not enough. We have to understand the Word. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower? He says, the sower throws the seed and some of the seed falls on the path and the path is so hard that it can't penetrate the path and while it's lying there, the birds come and eat it. And then in translating that or interpreting that, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what is sown in his heart. You see, when I don't understand the word, that's when the evil one comes and takes it away. And then Jesus talks about the good soil, and how does he interpret that? He says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the good ground, this is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed, bear, indeed bears fruit. So in order for the truth of God's word to impact me, I must first understand it. Now, what I want to note here is seven things that the people in Nehemiah's day did to help them understand the Word of God. Seven things. Number one, they were honest. In verse 1, it says that all the people gathered in Jerusalem. Now, if you'll look for a reason why they gathered, it's not given here. It doesn't say that Nehemiah called them together. It doesn't say anything about why they were there. We get a hint about that in verse 2 because verse 2 tells us the date. It was the first day of the seventh month. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 24, we find that the first day of the seventh month was a holiday. It was a day of rest. It was a day when they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. Now, according to Numbers chapter 10 and verse 10, they blew the trumpets on the first day of every month. But on the seventh month, they celebrated apparently like on the seventh day was a Sabbath rest, the seventh month was sort of a Sabbath month. And to, so to commemorate that, God established that the first day of that month would be a day of Sabbath rest. 
In fact, if you look at the seventh month in Jewish history, it's really an entire month of rest. Because on the tenth of this same month is the Day of Atonement, when they were reminded of God's forgiveness. And then on the fifteenth day of this same month was the Feast of Booths, and that was a week-long time when they celebrated and remembered how God had provided for them in the wilderness. And it's really a reflection on their fellowship with God. And so this whole month is really a month of rest. The first day of the seventh month also marked the beginning of the civil new year. And so it was the Jewish equivalent to our New Year's Day. And so it was a perfect time for the nation to get right with God and make a fresh beginning. And it seems that that is exactly what was on their minds because if you look at verse 1, it says they all gathered as one man. They got 100% participation. They all gathered and they were all there as one man. In other words, they were all on the same page. They were all thinking the same thing. And what were they thinking? They were thinking, we are in need. We are not spiritually where we need to be. And that's evident by the fact that they asked Ezra to bring the book of the law. Now, Ezra didn't do this on his own. And Nehemiah didn't ask him to do it. And it wasn't a normal part of the Feast of Trumpets. The people requested it because they were honest enough to realize that they had a need. And that is always the starting point of revival. When I am honest enough to admit that I have a need. And you know, it's fitting in verse 1 that we're told that they gathered in front of the water gate. Now, what does water symbolize in Scripture? It symbolizes two things. Number one, it symbolizes the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26, we're told that Jesus cleansed the church by the washing of water with the Word. In John 15, 3, He said, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. And so the Word, or, the, or water, symbolizes the Word of God. Second thing it symbolizes is the Spirit. In John 7, 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then John interprets that in verse 39. This he spoke of the Spirit. And so they gather in front of the water gate, the symbol of the two essential ingredients to revival. In order to be revived, I must be cleansed by the Word and I must be filled by the Spirit. But first, like the people of Jerusalem, I have to be honest enough to say, I need it. Second thing that they did to help them understand the Word is that they were particular. They were honest about their need, but they didn't just go to anybody. Who did they come to? They came to Ezra. Now, why did they come to Ezra? Well, the answer lies back in Ezra chapter 7. And if you turn back there, the book before Nehemiah is Ezra, chapter 7. It makes a comment about Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 and the end of verse 9 says, The good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. God's hand was on Ezra. Why was God's hand on Ezra? Well, verse 10 tells us it was because he studied God's Word and he practiced God's Word. That is, he applied it to himself and then he taught God's Word. 
Ezra was not just a teacher. Ezra was a man who had God's hand on him. I think there's two key phrases here that tell us about Ezra. One is it says he set his heart to study the Word. Studying the Word of God was not a hobby for Ezra. It was his life. He set his heart to study God's Word. And then the second phrase is he practiced the Word. And so when you heard Ezra teach, Ezra didn't just present facts. Ezra didn't just present theory. Ezra presented principles that were being proven in his own life. And everyone knew that. And so when it came time for revival, when they said, we've got a need spiritually, the one that they turned to was Ezra. They weren't going to be satisfied with anybody else. They were careful. They were particular about who they chose. Now today, there are a lot of people with the title teacher, preacher, and they're not all the same. And if you are going to experience the impact that the Word of God can have in your life, you need to be particular about the kind of teacher that you sit under. You need to sit under a teacher who studies the Word and practices the Word and teaches the Word. That's what we learn about Israel here. They were particular. Third thing, they were patient. Look at verse 3 at the beginning. It says, And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Ezra read from the book of the law from dawn till noon. That means there was a six-hour service. See, when you're set for revival, you can't get enough. You say, well, I can't listen to the Word of God for six hours. Well, let me ask you this. Can you watch television for six hours? See, if we, if we are committed to something, we, can, we do a lot of things for six hours. If we are committed to something, if we really realize we've got a need, we will find the patience to sit under the Word of God in order to have that need met. In the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I saw where a church in Florissant was advertising the express service. I guess that's where you go if you've got ten items or less, you know, to the <laughs> express service. Here's how it was described. A relevant, fast-paced, and concise 30-minute Saturday church service, specially designed with the active lifestyle of today's world in mind. You can just kind of rush in and rush out. Well, you see, there is no instant spirituality. It takes time to understand the Word of God. I have got to be patient. And that was true of the people in Nehemiah's day. Fourth thing they did, they were attentive. You say, well, if this thing went on for six hours, there were probably people napping and rocking and shifting and wives were nudging their husbands to get them to wake up. No. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Literally, the ears of the people were to the book. They were there for six hours and they were attentive to the Word of God. You know, it's an exciting thing to teach people who are attentive. Hello? Now, I, I'll give you a compliment. It, it's exciting to, to teach in this church. 
And, and you don't get it unless you're in my perspective up here because when I do something like I just did, when I say look at the end of verse 3, what I generally see is a wave of heads that go down because everybody is with it. You know, they want to know, does the Bible say that? They are attentive to say, what does the Bible say? That's exciting to teach people who want to learn the Word of God. And that is one of the essential ingredients of revival. I have to desire that. And then the fifth thing that they did is they were reverent. Look at verse 4. It says, And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood six fellows on his right hand and seven fellows on his left hand. Now, they built a pulpit or a platform for Ezra to stand on. Now, why did they do that? Well, partly so that the people could hear better, but primarily because they wanted to elevate the Word. They had respect for the Word of God. And so they built this platform to elevate God's Word. And I think that becomes more evident in verse 5. It says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra had the book of the law. We can assume that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He would have them in a scroll, probably individual scrolls. But when he stood up and when he opened that scroll, all the people who were seated stood. Now why did they stand? They stood out of respect for the Word of God. When the president enters the room, what happens? Someone says, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And what do people do? They get up out of respect. People, nobody has to say, get up, the President's coming in. Everybody immediately stands. They rise out of respect. And that's what happened here. See, these people didn't have pocket New Testaments. They didn't have Bibles that they carried around with them. And so when the Word of God was brought in and when it was opened, they all stood up out of respect for the Word. You see, what was happening here was that these people had seen God through them rebuild the wall in 52 days. And they saw the power of God and they said, we want to know more about God. And so when he came in and opened that book, it was not just any normal book. It was the word of the God who had built the walls in 52 days. And so they stand up out of respect for that word. You know, I'm afraid that evangelical Christians today are better at defending the word of God than knowing how to treat the Word of God. Sometimes we say, yes, I believe it. I'll defend it to the last ounce of my energy. But when it comes to what I do with the Word of God and how I respect the Word of God and how I honor the Word of God in the place I give it in my life, that's another issue. Revival begins in the hearts of those who respect the Word. In Isaiah 66, we read the Lord saying, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And my hand made all these things. The Lord elevates himself. I'm seated in heaven. I've got my feet on the earth. I made everything that you see with my hand. And then he says, But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's respect for the word of God. And that's the one that God meets with and opens his word to. Sixth thing, they were submissive. Verse 6, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Ezra opened in prayer. 
and blessed the Lord. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Ezra opened in prayer, and the people were following along as he prayed. And their response was, Amen, Amen. Now, Amen means, so be it. Amen means, I agree. You can count me in. That's what Amen means. So the people are saying with their lips, as Ezra blesses God, we're in on that. We agree. We submit to everything you're saying. And then not only that, but we read on in verse 6 where it says, while lifting up their hands. Now what does it mean when you lift your hands? Well, it means several things. Number one, it's an expression of praise. It's exalting the Lord. But there's a second idea behind lifting your hands, and that is it's an expression of need. The Jewish people typically raise their hands with the palms up. Because what they were really saying was, Lord, I need to receive from you. Lord, fill my cup. And in this case, they're coming and saying, Lord, I thought I knew something, but I don't know anything. You teach me. I'm submissive to you. And that was their response as they raised their hands. And so it's a matter of exalting God. It's a matter of saying, Lord, I want to receive from you. But there's also another meaning behind the idea of raising your hands. And that is the idea of commitment or making a pledge to the Lord. In Genesis chapter 14, when a group of kings attacked Sodom and took the people captive and also Lot, you remember that Abraham went and defeated them and brought the people back. And on his way back, we're told that the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people to me and you take the goods. And Abraham's response there in Genesis 14 was, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. He says, I have sworn to the Lord. Now, literally what Abraham says is this. He says, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, saying that I will not take anything from you. You see, when you lift up your hand to the Lord, you are in its essence making a pledge to the Lord and you are saying, I agree to do whatever you say. And so when the people lifted up their hands on this occasion, they were expressing all three of these ideas. We exalt you, we need to receive from you, and we are submitting ourselves to you in that we will do whatever you tell us to do. And then not only that, but the end of verse 6 says, and then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They went high and they went low. They lifted him up and they humbled themselves. They exalted the Lord and they got down to worship him. And so with their words, amen, with their hands lifted up, and with their bodies bowing down, they were saying, we submit to you and to your word. And if we are going to have revival in our lives, we must not only respect the word of God, but we must submit ourselves to the word of God. Seventh thing we see about the people here is that they were diligent. And that's in verses 7 and 8. Also, 13 fellows, some of which were mentioned in verse 4, some who weren't, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. 
Now, Ezra didn't just read the law. We're told that with the help of these Levites, it was translated and then explained. Now, it had to be translated because the Bible was written in Hebrew and they were raised in Babylon. And so most of them spoke Aramaic. But for even, even for those who spoke Hebrew, in the time since Moses had written the law, Hebrew had gone through some changes. And conversational Hebrew would have been different than the ancient Hebrew that Moses wrote in. And so it had to be translated into the language of the people. Sometimes people ask me, well, what do you think about all these new translations? I think new translations are great. They're great because they're putting the Word of God in the language of the people. You see, the Bible never changes, but language changes. Let me, let me illustrate that. You see that? You know what that is? That's English. That, that's taken from the first English translation of the Bible. John Wycliffe. Can you tell me what verse that is? Matthew eleven twenty eight. We got he was there. How much of that you think you would understand if you didn't already know that verse from another translation? We can kind of get started with that verse or find something in that verse, then we switch over to what we may have memorized it in. But you see, that's, that would be hard if that's what our Bible read like. You see, new translations, that's what they did in Nehemiah's day. They re Ezra read the word and then these other individuals were taking that word and they were translating it into words that could be understood. Now, Wycliffe's version goes back about 600 years. That was done in 1382. The time between Moses' writing of the Pentateuch and Ezra's reading of the law is a thousand years. And so language had changed as well in that time, and so it had to be translated. And also it had to be explained, because it had been so long since these people had heard the Word of God that they didn't know what it meant. And so the Levites were out among the people, maybe even breaking them down into small groups, and they were explaining the Word of God. They were unlocking the meaning. They were giving the sense. You see, this is really expository preaching. It was read, it was translated, and it was explained in order to give the sense. That's the kind of preaching we do here. We take the Word of God, we read it, and we explain it, and we apply it. That's expository preaching. Now, that kind of preaching may not be as entertaining as some other styles, but the result is evident because if you look at the end of verse 8, it says, so they understood. The result is that they understood the Word. You know, the greatest compliment you can give to me is not, I really enjoyed that. It's, I really understood that. Because, you see, that is my goal to get you to understand the Word of God so that you can apply it to your life so that He can have the impact through His Word in your life that He desires to have. And that is where preaching starts and that is where revival starts. When the Word of God impacts our mind with understanding. That's point number one. 
Now, the second way that we must respond to the Word of God in order for revival to take place is the emotions. And we see that in verses 9 to 12. Notice verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, when's the last time the Bible made you cry? These people are weeping. Why are they weeping? Because it dawns on them that their refusal to listen to the Word of God has caused them to go nowhere for the past 140 years. They are mourning over sin, which is the outcome you would expect after spending six hours listening to the law. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so they listen to the law, they realize their sin, and they're weeping over it. Now, sorrow is a proper response emotionally to the truth of God. In fact, it's essential. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, we're told that godly sorrow is what produces repentance. Now, I realize that people are wired differently emotionally. Some people can cry in a moment. Some people seem to never cry. But if you have never felt sorrow over your sin, then you have never repented. Because the Word of God, when it impacts my life, will produce that sorrow, which is according to the will of God, that leads me to repentance and ultimately to salvation. The Word of God has to have this impact upon me. And so as Ezra read the Word of God and as it was explained, their conscience was awakened, they were brought under conviction, sorrow came upon them, and that was the expression of their repentance. But you see, that is not the end purpose of revival. Revival is not intended to simply make you cry. And that's why we find at the end of this verse that the, the leaders came out and said to the people, Stop! Verse 10 says, Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. God takes us through sorrow into joy. Now, I want you to notice some things about joy in these few verses. Number one, joy is a choice. You see that? As a Christian, there are times when I will be sorrowful, but I don't have to stay there. You see, the people came out and said, the leaders came out and said, stop crying and start rejoicing. You see, that's a choice I have as a Christian. Joy is a choice. Second thing, they became joyful on a holy day. Did you know that happiness and holiness go together? Happiness and holiness coexist. They're sisters. Well, maybe not sisters. Not a good example. They coexist. They live together. When I experience holiness, 
I experience happiness. You know, sometimes we get the misguided idea that we have to slip back into the world to get a little happiness. Not the case. In Psalm 1611, we read, In thy presence is fullness of joy. I need to draw near the Lord because in His presence there is fullness of joy. There is more happiness than I have ever experienced. Third thing about joy, the joy we experience is actually God's. You see that? It says at the end of verse 10, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, it's His joy. And when we draw near to Him, we enter into that joy. That's why Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy. When the Spirit within me is operating, I am experiencing the joy of the Lord. Fourthly, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now what does that mean? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, I think we can understand it just in the physical realm. What does sorrow do to a person? Ever been really sorrowful? You're just drained. You're completely exhausted when you're sorrowful. You don't feel like doing anything. The simplest little task is difficult to perform when you're filled with sorrow. And God is saying here, I want you to experience my joy because my joy is your strength. I don't want you to serve me in sorrow. I want you to serve me in joy. And when we are serving the Lord in joy, you see, there are times as a Christian when I become sorrowful. That sorrow over sin that they experience. But I need to move out of that into the forgiveness of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord so that I enjoy His joy because that's where my strength lies. There is energy in the joy of the Lord. So if you're serving God today and every step of the way is drudgery, then you're missing it. Because God doesn't want you to serve Him that way. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Fifth thing we can say about joy, it's found in understanding the Word. You see that at the end of verse 12? They celebrated a great festival because... They understood the words which had been made known to them. The same word that crushed them with sorrow filled them with joy. Isn't that exciting? Very same word that crushed them with sorrow filled them with joy. Are you lacking joy? Then find an Ezra and tell him to bring the book. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name. David said in Psalm 19, 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The writer of Psalm 119 who prayed, Revive me 11 times, said in verse 111, Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. And so if revival is to take place, the Word of God must impact the emotion. It takes me through sorrow into joy. It takes me from the sorrow over my sin to the joy of my salvation. Third way we must respond to the Word of God in order for revival to take place is the will. And that we see in verses 13 to 18. And we're going to go over this quickly. Look at verse 13. 
Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Now the feast is over. It was a one-day event, but the next day, who shows up? Well, the heads of the households. You hear that, men? It starts with you. It starts with you. Why are they there? We read in verse 13, they came to gain insight into the words of the law. You know, when, you know what day of the year I have the biggest appetite? The Friday after Thanksgiving. You know why? Because I ate all day Thursday. And then Friday, it increases your appetite. If I ate all day yesterday, I'm going to be really hungry today. That's what happened spiritually to these people. They spent six hours under the Word of God. Next day, guess what? They show up again. We want more of that. And you know what happens? As they're studying, they find something they've never noticed before. Verse 14, And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now the feast of booths was an annual feast reminding the people of Israel of the time when their fathers had wandered in the wilderness. And they're reading about this. This is a feast that's coming up in 13 days. They're reading about it in Leviticus chapter 23, and they come across a verse that says, during the Feast of Booths, the children of Israel were to actually make booths out of sticks and live in them for seven days. Now, that's interesting. They found a directive in the Word of God that Ezra didn't even know about. In fact, if you slide down to verse 17, we read in the middle of that verse, the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. They found something in the Word of God that Ezra didn't know about, and the children of Israel had not done since the days of Joshua. You see, Israel had celebrated this feast, but they had not lived in booths. Now, what are the people going to do? They find out about this written in the Word of God. What are they going to do? Well, they could have said, well, you know, David didn't do it, and Samuel didn't do it, and nobody else is doing it. Why should we do it? And they could have said, you know, I know it's written there, but surely God doesn't expect us to actually do that. What do they do? They are obedient to the Word of God. Notice verse 15. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booze, notice, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and live in them. This is the final area that the word impacts, the will. They obeyed. They proved themselves to be doers of the word and not simply hearers. And if you'll notice at the end of verse 17, it says, and there was great rejoicing. You say, well, how do you rejoice while you're living in a hut? That is the joy of obedience. And then verse 18 says, and he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last. This didn't, didn't just happen once. It didn't just happen the second time. It happened daily throughout the feast. They sat under the Word of God and they celebrated the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according 
to the ordinance. Do you find yourself this morning feeling distant and isolated from God? Have you hit a spiritual plateau? You just don't seem to be going anywhere? Are you just going through the motions in your Christian life? Then you need a spiritual revival like the people in Nehemiah's day. How does it happen? When you bring the book back into the center of your life. When you understand the Word and you learn to rejoice in the Word and you obey the Word. It's that simple. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the reminder in this passage of its power in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we might truly become like the people in Nehemiah's day. That we might be those who sit under the word of God in order to understand it. Allow it to impact us emotionally and that we will repent and then rejoice in our salvation. And Lord, that we truly might be those people who obey your word in every detail that you might be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.